Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and I'm delighted to welcome today's guest, who for many of you will need no introduction, economist and former civil servant Lord McPherson. Nick joined the Treasury in 1985 and served as Permanent Secretary to the Treasury from 2005 to 2016, spanning Gordon Brown, Alistair Darling and George Osborne's tenures as Chancellor. He managed the department through the financial and wider economic crisis, which began in 2007. Nick is currently Chairman of Halls Bank and a non-executive director of both British Land and Scottish American Investment Trust. Today, Nick is going to help us understand what happened over the last economic crisis, what worked and what didn't in the aftermath, and how he thinks policymakers should tackle the uncharted territory we find ourselves in today. Nick, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, you were the top civil servant in the Treasury over the global financial crisis. From an economic perspective, what are the most instructive things you learned from that period? I think in a crisis, you've got to be prepared to be quite radical. I think with hindsight, we may have been a little bit too cautious in the Treasury back in 2008. And um, the, the critical thing is um, to, for the state to intervene in these circumstances to support the economy, or in, in the case of 2008, keep the banking system going. And um, inevitably in these situations, you're dealing in, con- you're making policy under conditions of uncertainty. It's always all very clear after the event when you can look at the statistics and, um, and indeed um, critique the policy response. At the time, you have very little information uh, about what's really going on at the current time indeed. So in my view, if you can get your policy response about sort of two thirds right, you're doing very well indeed. Um, but uh, and in that respect, actually, I think the um, authorities this time around last year um, actually acted really quickly. I think learning the lessons potentially of the 2008 crisis. And so to that extent, um, the Bank of England and the Treasury, Mr. Sinak, should be congratulated. So in terms of where we're at now, mechanisms to support the economy include monetary and fiscal policy. Let's start with the monetary side. The Bank of England has cut interest rates and issued a large QE programme, um, quantitative easing having been introduced in the last crisis. What are your views on QE now? I noted that you said four years ago QE was like heroin. You need ever-increasing fixes to create a high. Meanwhile, the negative side effects increase. Um, do you think it might have gone too far? And, and what are the negative side effects? When I say it's like heroin, what I, what I, I guess I mean is that in 2008, um, or 2009, when I think quantitative easing began, long-term interest rates were still quite high. Um, you know, the government was borrowing over a 10-year period at a rate of something like 4 4.5%. Um, as we went into this crisis, long-term interest rates were incredibly low. Um, my recollection is that they were around sort of 1%, um, if that. And so... You really do have to ask, well, what, what is quantitative easing going to achieve in those circumstances? And if, if really the objective is just to get long-term interest rates down from, I don't know, 1% to 0.6%, and um, to do that, you have to do um, literally hundreds and hundreds of billions of quantitative easing, 
you do have to ask how effective um, it's likely to be as a policy tool. Now, I think the Bank of England's response um, last spring was perfectly sensible, um, layering interest rates and doing more QE. But um, I guess what what worries me is um, is two things. There's a point when interest rates become so low that the banking system itself becomes impaired. Now, I should declare a bit of an interest. I chair a small private bank, as you mentioned. Um, nevertheless, when interest rates become very low indeed, banking becomes a pretty unprofitable activity. And the risk is that banks will actually lend less rather than more. So there's a risk there. But, but I think there's a second um, problem, which is that there is just so much money now sloshing around the system. Policy is so loose that um, there, I mean, I'm not a monetarist. I don't sort of believe there is some pure link between money and inflation. But I do think, um, and no doubt we can come on some of the wider issues underpinning it, the risk of inflation has increased. Indeed, um, you know, that is reflected in the fact that inflation keeps coming in higher than the Bank of England itself is forecasting. So I, I think the bank was sensible to intervene last year, but I'm slightly surprised that they are so reluctant to uh, withdraw some of that stimulus. And um, I mean, look, my, my view of the, the coronavirus crisis is, is actually primarily um, this has been a supply side problem created by the virus itself. And actually, the most effective economic intervention at the moment is actually getting the virus sorted out, getting on top of it, rolling out the vaccine. Yes, there have been important interventions, um, I think, by the government to keep the furlough scheme going, supporting business and and so on. So I don't have a problem with um, greater fiscal support in in the short run. Indeed, I think that's got to do the heavy lifting. I just wonder whether um, uh, monetary policy um, needs to play quite such an advanced role. Turning to fiscal policy and drawing it back to the last crisis, austerity was one of the policies in the aftermath of 2008 introduced to shrink the debt um, and its success has been a matter of sharp debate. I think lots of people think it has not, was not a success. What did you think about austerity measures at the time they were introduced and what do you think about them now? Well, I may reflect my um, intrinsic sort of bias as a, uh, as a former Treasury official. I do worry about the size of, um, of the nation's debt. And um, the problem, um, certainly over my um, adult life with borrowing, is it's possible for the state to carry on borrowing um, without any obvious um, sort of harm in terms of uh, the impact on the the wider economy, and indeed it can do some good if it is supporting economic activity. The problem, I think, historically has always been that there have been inflection points um, where suddenly, if 
if you as a country are seen as an outlier, um, that can have really quite negative um, consequences, um, either in terms of uh, the um, impact on long-term interest rates or um, an impact on on sterling, e.g. through sort of devaluation and so on. So in 1976, for example, um, when the government was borrowing far less than it is now, um, it ended up having to borrow from the IMF, which was um, a difficult experience. And indeed, in the early 90s, with our exit from the ERM, um, I think that also was a comment on um, the credibility of the government sort of wider economic policy. So you, you have to be alert to that. And um, I think austerity was, um, I think actually it was a, coin, a, a word, a term coined by um, David Cameron, but I think it sort of came back to, to bite his administration. Yes, uh, Cameron and Osborne sought to reduce the deficit, but if you actually look at what happened in practice, it wasn't hugely different from what Labour were proposing at the 2010 election. It was a fairly steady uh, consolidation of the deficit. You may criticise some of the measures, for example, cutting poor people's benefits, but that was a matter of political choice. Um, there were lots of other options um, they could have implemented. So I think, um, you know, it's it's always important for the government to have a have a plan. When a deficit has increased a lot, it kind of needs to be able to reassure uh, the markets and uh, and indeed the electorate that it has a plan at least to stabilise um, the level of debt in relation to the nation's income. And so um, anyway, I, you know, I'm I, I'm probably in a minority. I think um, the fiscal policies of the Conservative Party post, I should say actually not the Conservative Party, I should say the coalition government after 2010 had a certain logic. Um, I would perhaps take issue of of the, the instruments, the government, the levers the government chose to pull. And actually for much the same reason, I very much hope that at some point, Mr. Sunak will set out a plan of how he is going to stabilize the nation's debt because we have been borrowing a lot. Fortunately, the economy is recovering, so some revenues are beginning to come in. So the deficit's coming in a bit lower than expected. Nevertheless, I think that when we reach a steady state in the econ on the economy, we will find we've got a much bigger deficit than when we entered um, the, 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 the coronavirus crisis. And so I hope that the government will be able to set out how it will, um, it doesn't have to balance the books, but it does need to show that debt will not continue to rise inexorably year by year in relation to national income. And the reason for that is that other countries will be addressing their debt problems. And Britain doesn't have to be, have a more rigorous policy than other countries, but it can't afford to be an outlier. People don't have to hold sterling in the way that they have to hold dollars. And so, as I say, I hope that, you know, either this autumn or in the spring, the government will set out a plan about what it's going to do. And I suspect that will involve some combination of, of higher taxes 
and lower spending. Can a strategy be to inf- just simply inflate away the debt? Well, it could do. Um, depends. It depends what um, your attitude towards inflation is. Um, I do think um, there is. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to bring morality into the conversation because I think that's always dangerous. But I do think the government has a obligation to try to um, maintain the value of um, the currency, the money people earn and save, um, because what is unfair about inflation is how it impacts different parts of the population differently. You know, if you're living on a fixed income or you've got a fixed level of savings and you find you've got lots of inflation, you suddenly become a whole lot poorer. Often, you know, at a time when you're retired and you haven't got actually the opportunity to um, go out and um, earn more money. Um, Inflation, I mean, the other problem with inflation is it tends, if you really let it rip and um, you're prepared just to carry on printing money in a sense to pay for government spending, you can end up with a lot higher inflation than you, you expected. Now, I'm not claiming that Britain is anywhere close to going down the sort of Latin American or Turkish route, but it's something you need to keep an eye on. Um, and there clearly are inflationary forces out there, some of which, I mean, many of which are to do with, um, well, some of which are to do with structural problems to do with coming out of the coronavirus itself, and which may be temporary. But some of those forces actually look rather more um, underlying. Um, some stem from Brexit, um, uh, just, you know, we can no longer rely on the Polish taxpayer to train much of our workforce. We've got to do it ourselves. And judging by the shortage of HGV drivers, we've got a bit of a problem there. And then you compound that with excess demand. And, and you might have a problem. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying inflation is about to take off, but I do think the authorities just need to keep an eye on it. And I think a, a policy of just simply inflating away the debt um, is likely to uh, have an impact on trust because the people who buy your debts, assuming it's not your central bank, do kind of have to think that it's worth holding. And if your policy becomes just, well, we're just going to inflate it away, why on earth would anybody want to hold that debt? Um, And at that point, um, you find that um, the price of borrowing, which in the end is determined by the market, not by the central bank, can actually turn against you. And that was part of the problem in the 1970s. I spoke to Russell Napier a few months ago who called who called um, financial repression, which is another term for it, a surreptitious form of wealth tax. It is. Um, um, but it's it, at least a wealth tax. You know, you can you can really target your wealth tax on the people with huge amounts of wealth. I think inflation just is slightly more random in its um, in its incidence and in terms of whom it whom it impacts. And um that can impact on poor people as well as the wealthy. Yeah. So we've talked about quantitative easing. We've talked about austerity. They're two very different things, but um, could be argued that both have driven inequality. 
do you think this is true and if so what should be done about it yes it's an interesting issue i think i do think um certainly um quantitative easing has had the consequence of pushing up um asset prices and um you see that across the housing market you see it particularly in the equity market um in a sense if if you can borrow for virtually nothing um why wouldn't you go out and buy assets but the problem is of course that that it's it's the asset rich who tend to benefit most from this policy and um now in a in a sensible world the government could take would take action um in a sense to um tax some of this these excess capital gains which have um arisen from qe but um the fact is the government hasn't done that i don't i don't blame the bank of england for that actually incidentally i mean that is um i mean the government could have done something about it and in itself i don't think that is an argument against qe um but um it is i do think some of the distributional consequences of qe and you also mentioned uh, austerity the fact the way the government went about austerity um these are these are big issues and um it is important to maintain social cohesion and the risk always is that if you don't um eventually um you will get a government who will take um quite serious action on this front um I mean actually the british people didn't elect mr corbyn they had a chance um in which case i think he would have probably gone for rather more redistributionist policies but um we are we are in a strange world in 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 that respect and i don't i don't actually see much sign of any government actually dealing with um those distributional consequences of qe which i th- i personally think's a, a bit of a pity yeah i think an interesting area close to lots of people's hearts is house prices and house price inflation um low interest rates and government policies seem to have juiced the market um it also seems that this is causing intergenerational problems do you think the government has a deliberate policy to pump the housing market and how long can this policy go on for i i do think um successive governments have um generally supported the people who have houses over those who don't um so you've seen um a number of interventions um which have um in a sense supported demand helped to buy for example um for the last 40 years um we've had a whole lot of tax policy decisions which have effectively uh ensured that housing is taxed less than other assets so um you have you know um capital gains tax exemption on your main residence um there used to be the domestic rates which are quite a good proxy 
for a, a tax on housing wealth, but they got replaced by the council tax. And the council tax hasn't um, been um, revalued for um, 30 years now, which just means that the, 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 the tax you pay, pay bears very little relationship to um, the size of your housing wealth. And I do, and then from time to time, the government will do things like sort of have stamp duty. I mean, stamp duty incidentally is a very poor tax. It discourages people from moving. It clogs up the housing market. So the government then from time to time introduces stamp duty holidays, which just have um, an impact of pushing up prices even more. So I think it's fair to say that the average cost of um, housing over the last year has gone up more than the than any stamp duty saving any um, first time buyer would have made. And at the heart of the problem is that that old people and um, people who own their houses are more likely to vote uh, than young people and people who don't own their houses. And so it's always tempting for governments basically to try and keep this rather important constituency happy. But it does distort um, asset allocation. And I think actually it results in a more inefficient um, economy. I mean, if people are more likely to invest in housing than in, um, than in you know, real activity, um, then um, you're not going to get the investment you need in productive assets in the economy. And to that extent, I think Britain has always contrasted with places like Germany, who don't have endemic housing booms. But I don't really blame the politicians. I kind of blame all of us. We, you know, we're, we're stuck in this extraordinary embrace that we're all addicted to consumption and housing inflation. We elect politicians who give us more of it. And then we, um, those of us who have housing, sit around a dinner table congratulating ourselves whilst shedding crocodile tears over our children who can't afford anything. Um, one day this will resolve itself, but I, I try to persuade every chancellor I work with to do something to tax housing more and completely failed. And productivity is an interesting part of it. What do you think the government could do to boost productivity? Really, it means really hard. Every government has claims it's about to do something about productivity and productivity remains amazingly stable um, or actually the growth is worse than it was before. Um, look, very simply, if, if the government really wants to do something about productivity, it's got to have a far more successful policy around skills. I think Britain actually has good universities. I think the top 20% of the population gets a um, really good education and are potentially really productive. Where I worry most is around the sort of, once you get down to, say, the 40th, 50th, 60th, 70th, 80th percentile, do we equip people um, who are coming out of school, who go into further education uh, with the skills to be more productive? I worry about that. And actually, um, this isn't a new problem. Governments have been commissioning reports about skills for the last 100 years. We just haven't made much progress. So I would, I would prioritize skills. I would also prioritise um, investment. Um, as I say, I think 
I think we tend to be addicted to consumption in this country, which means that we chronically underinvest. That's partly about the state. It needs to invest sensibly and actually needs to focus on investment which has a high return. I sometimes worry that governments are too obsessed with prestige projects like High Speed 2 when just building a few and better roads might make more of a difference. And then, again, I think innovation is important. Um, you've seen that actually with coronavirus vaccines. And this has, actually has been something governments have been quite good on, which is ensuring that we support uh, innovation and research in our universities, because I think that can make a huge difference. And if you look at where there is growth in this country, it tends to be in cities with dynamic universities. Those city regions, I think, can make a big difference. And But above all, if you want to really improve productivity, you really need cross-party support. Far too often, governments come into power, they rearrange all the deck chairs, they make people reapply for jobs. They call it reform. But actually, it's all rather pointless and wasteful and um, tends to miss the big picture. So um, what I'd like to see is a bit of German consensus, um, which really does home in on these things. Because you can't change, productivity won't change five years. It takes 20, 25, 30 years of real persistence, real focus. And if you do that, you might just raise the productivity rate by about 0.25% over and above what it would have grown by anyway. But it's definitely worth doing. You said earlier you think the government will need to raise some taxes to help get the deaths under control. How do you see the trade-off between tax rises and economic growth? Well, I think it very much depends on um, on, on which taxes you choose and how, um, how, how they impact on the economy. So, for example, the, the one tax the government has agreed on is a whopping great increase in the rate of corporation tax, the tax taxes on business. Now, that's a really easy tax to raise because, you know, knowing corporations aren't individuals. So, you know, no one really notices it. Now, it may be justified because other countries are raising their corporation tax rates too. But I would be very worried if the government just simply carried on piling more and more taxes on business, because in the end, um, that will probably result in less investment and um, make Britain a less attractive place to do business. I think in the end, I mean, it's an issue about the, how much the sort of rich pay in tax compared to everybody else. It may be that there is, is some scope for raising taxes on the better off. And I've mentioned housing and um, capital gains and so on. But if you want to raise serious money, I'm afraid there's really no choice but to raise taxes in which everybody pays. It's always th tempting to think that there's someone better off than you who can bear all the tax. And actually, it usually doesn't work because the better off have a terrible tendency to leave the country or to organise their affairs rather better than the government can uh, organise theirs in terms of extracting revenue from the better off. So you do come back to basically value-added tax, um, income tax, and national insurance. I mean, for my part, I've been advocating for a while some sort of temporary social solidarity charge because we do have to um, 
think if we want to spend more on things like social care, you're going to have to pay for it. And ideally, those should, that in my view, that, that should be paid by everybody according to their to you know in proportion to their incomes. But you shouldn't just focus on, on employment income because there are a fair amount of um, rentiers and people who live off dividends and so on, and they need to pay their fair share. There have been some reports about um, a possible national insurance tax rise, even though yeah. that was part of what the Conservative Party had said that they wouldn't do. do. Would you support that? Well, I certainly support some sort of tax rise. I'm I'm slightly against national insurance because national insurance is only paid by those of us. Well, for a start, it's not paid by anybody who's older than retirement age. Um, you stop paying it when you get to pension age. And actually, there are a lot of quite wealthy, uh, high-income people who, who are relatively old. I don't see why they shouldn't pay their fair share. National insurance, you're basically just taxing jobs. And I also worry that young people would end up paying rather more than they should if you go down that route. So I'd like to see a more broadly-based income charge. But before you think I'm some sort of headbanger who just wants to tax everybody, I really much prefer not to. And I do think we have to have quite a sort of grown-up conversation about public spending, what we spend our money on. And we are, we are going to have to um, spend rather less, I suspect. Have you pitched your social solidarity charge to the government? Have you had a response from them? <laughs> well, I, I've been sort of pitching it in a slightly hapless way for some years. And occasionally I read articles in the FT about what, what the government's planning to do. I, I, I may have had some influence i rather doubt it because certainly the government's never asked me for my opinion and i can't really blame them okay so you said we need to get spending under control modern monetary theory has been gathering momentum they would argue that it it doesn't matter what you spend you can get it in tax the, the debt doesn't matter what is your response to modern monetary theorists like like everything which tells you you can have something for nothing i'm just just a little bit suspicious look in the short run, the government can carry on borrowing. I'm not disputing that. You know, at the moment, long-term interest rates remain stubbornly low, and that's good. And if ever there's a time the government should be investing, it's now because you can borrow for 40 years at something like one and a bit percent. So I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying if you're going to fund consumption now, by ever-increasing borrowing, just carrying on, spend, 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 in the end, there will be consequences. There will be higher inflation. There will be potentially a, a devaluation of sterling. And actually, the cost of borrowing will go up because it comes back to my point that if unless the central bank is going to carry on buying the debt, someone has to buy it. And if the value of that debt keeps falling because of inflation, people aren't going to want to hold it. So I think there's a balance to be struck. I'm not claiming we need to go into full-on austerity. I'm just saying you need a plan to at least stabilise debt in relation to GDP. And I think I do think it's slightly misleading the public, this idea that you can just spend with impunity. You can't. As part of my research for this, I came across something that you had said in 2019, and I'll, I'll paraphrase. Economic crises are in part owing to governments and institutions holding on to outdated ideas and applying them in a somewhat unthinking way, 
even though the situation has changed. What did you mean by this? And dare I even say it, if you had to guess, what do you think the next crisis might be? There's a tendency for, there's a wonderful quote from from Keynes about people um, hanging on to outdated theories. You get long cycles in economic policy where the conventional wisdom changes. But in changing, there's a tendency to throw out all the lessons of the past. So you mentioned modern monetary theory. Modern monetary theory is kind of a response to perhaps governments being overly obsessed about things like deficits and debts. I get that. And I think probably looking back on it, the Treasury may have been overly concerned about the growth in the debt around about the 2010 period. But but the risk is you, you sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater and you just think that you can do precisely the opposite of what you always thought in the past and somehow it will all work out fine. And nearly always, in my view, a crisis happens. You spend a lot of time sort of trying to understand why that crisis happened. And then you spend, you know, the next sort of 10, 20 years effectively refighting the last war. You become so obsessed with what triggered the last crisis that you just try and do everything to ensure it's not repeated. But in doing that, you often sow the seeds of the next crisis. So um, I don't know what the next, what will cause the next crisis. Um, you know, it'll be almost certainly something which n neither you nor I have mentioned during the course of this conversation. I mean, who would have guessed? Well, actually, quite a few people did guess, but that, you know, a massive pandemic would have triggered the extraordinary events of last year. What I concluded, actually, after many years of working in the Treasury, is that it's less important to, to you know, have a crystal ball and spend your time predicting the future, because none of us can predict the future. But what is more important is that we kind of develop a sort of agile states of mind that actually when, when bad things happen, we kind of are well-placed to adapt to them, to think the unthinkable, take the odd risk, and not become prisoners of some outdated economic orthodoxy. I guess one thing that has really changed over the past century is globalisation and the interconnectivity of economies. Just wondering, from your experience at the Treasury, to what extent does decision-making depend on the activity or influences of other countries, such as the US and maybe increasingly China? Well, a huge amount. I mean, Britain is a very open economy. It's very dependent on trade in um, primarily in services, actually, rather than goods, and can't exist in isolation. You know, we are we do contrast with the United States, which actually, to a large extent, even now, is a relatively closed economy. Trade does not account for much of American output, whereas um, it's very different in Britain. I mean, the other point I'd make on that is we are therefore, well, we are far more dependent on international capital markets. Countries like Japan and Italy have huge domestic savings. The British people have never been very interested in saving. So we depend 
well, as, as Mark Carney once put it, on the kindness of strangers to buy our government debt. And that also has implications. So, I mean, what conclusions do I draw from this? That international cooperation is really important. Sadly, there's not been much of it about in recent years, but I think um, the Biden administration does seem to want to use, you know, the, the classic international fora like the G7, the G20, the IMF, World Bank and so on to ensure greater international cooperation. That's good. And it's important. It's, most of the time, it's not that important. These things can be talking shops. But when things start going wrong, working together is really important. And actually, one of Gordon Brown's greatest successes was during the banking crisis was actually working really hard with, you know, Obama and Merkel and Sarkozy to look at this in a, from a global perspective. So, I mean, one thing which has worried me a bit in recent years, I mean, at least Mr. Trump has now disappeared from the scene, is I think if we all retreat into national policy making and trade barriers and so on, we do risk undermining the success of globalization. I'm not claiming that globalization has been brilliant from everybody's point of view, but free trade, in my view, is really central to greater global prosperity. And I would hope that at some point we can reinvigorate multilateral institutions like the World Trade Organization to try and reduce trade barriers rather than to increase them. I feel like I have to ask about Brexit now. What are your thoughts on the economic implications of Brexit in the long term? Well, I mean, my views on Brexit haven't really changed. That there's absolutely no reason why outside the European Union, Britain can't be really successful, but it does have to pursue sensible economic policies. And one of those is around around trade barriers. I do, I do worry a bit about the sort of relationship we have with the European Union now, that there are greater trade barriers than there were before. And, and any trade barrier is going to have an impact on um, economic activity. So I'm, I am confident that in the long run, our relationship with Europe will settle down. At the moment, you know, the politics of Brexit just mean that everybody gets very angry about everything. And so we're seeing this dispute about, about the Northern Ireland um, uh, protocol and so on. I do think, in the end, the, 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 the people who have dominated the Conservative Party on Brexit and uh, have sort of been a bit like sort of um, French revolutionaries in a way in, in, in pushing it ever, ever more in the direction of a harder Brexit. In the end, this will all settle down and we will end up in a rather softer territory where Britain will continue to trade sensibly with the European Union. We were never properly in the European Union. We were never part of the Schengen area. We were never in the Euro. I think we will settle down in a new equilibrium where we're outside the European Union but we have very close relationships with it. That, I think, still remains some way off, but I just think the pendulum will swing. In the meanwhile, yes, Britain's economy will probably grow slightly less rapidly than it otherwise would, but I don't expect anybody to notice it because we're just talking about something like sort of 0.2% a year. I mean, I wouldn't notice a 0.2% change in my income, so I don't expect the British people will notice it. I mean, personally, I think it's a pity. I would have preferred to stay in the European Union, but that 
but we lost that argument and it's time to move on and um, I'm trying my best to move on. Great well let's hope your outlook proves to be right. There's so much more I want to ask you about but I'm afraid we're out of time. Um, Thank you so much for joining me really appreciate your time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.